So let's remember where we've been. Let's remember the story of Scripture because it's easy. Because uh, it's easy to think something different. But it's, it's easy to think wrongly about the Bible because a lot of us have been taught that the Bible's very segmented, and it's not. It's one big story. So let's remember that story together. We spent a good amount of time thinking about creation, where God created all things good. He created male and female to image his glory and spread his glory throughout the entire world. God has always had a people. He's always been building his church. Not long after that, we looked at Genesis 3 and found the beginning of sin entering into the world. That's where death comes from. That's where disease comes from. It's where the brokenness of the world comes from. It's where rebellion comes from. And therefore, because of our rebellion against God, everything is cursed. Do you feel the weight of that? Evil is real, but it never gets the last word. From that point on, God has determined that what he said in Genesis 1 and 2 would happen. So he made promises to Noah. He made promises to Abraham. You remember he told Abraham at a very old age, you're going to have a son, and from your son will, be, will turn into a nation. And that nation will spread my glory everywhere, invite all the other nations in. Matter of fact, from your seed, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Do you hear Genesis 1 and 2 in that? So Abraham had a son that ultimately built into a nation. That nation ended up in Egypt. God brought them out of Egypt, took them into the land. They entered the land, and then they wanted a king. And not long after they had a king or two, three, the kingdom was divided because they wouldn't honor the covenant that God had made with them. They disobeyed. They were unfaithful. So the kingdom split into the north and the south, and God said, you're going to go into captivity. So that's kind of where we are. We're looking at all the prophets. We're in the section of Scripture that talks about the prophets and that they were speaking during the time leading up to the captivity and while God's people were in captivity. That's where we are. And remember, through this whole journey, we've been seeing that Christ is predicted to come and that he would be a literal Savior who actually accomplished something and that our only hope, both now and in the Old Testament, was for a Messiah, for the Christ. The way to God has always been by grace, always. He's always initiated, always pursued, always saved, always in Jesus. And we all, we've also seen sprinkled throughout almost every story, restoration, that one day all things will be made new. That one day the way God set up the, the world, it will be that way, except it'll be better. There won't be any temptation anymore when heaven and earth rejoin. Well, that means this morning we're looking at this story of Hosea, and we're going to think about relationship through the lens of promiscuity and unfaithfulness. And if you're breathing this morning, which I think everybody is, you have experienced the brokenness of unfaithfulness and promiscuity. You've experienced it, and it's hard. You know the shame of it. You know the frustration of it. You know the forced vulnerability of it. You've experienced it in one way or another. But I need you to understand that this book that we're looking at and thinking about relationships through the lens of promiscuity and unfaithfulness, this is not a book that talks about uh, 
whether you should or shouldn't divorce. It's not what this book is about. This book is not even so much about Gomer. It's not even so much about Hosea. This is a story and a book about God. So let's not forget that as we read this. Let's not forget that this is a story of God. Listen to this as I read Hosea chapter 3. It's a short chapter. And the Lord said to me, meaning Hosea, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. Though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in the fear to the, in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Let's pray together. Lord, as we look at this passage again and as we think about your word again and as we contemplate who you are, would you focus our minds and attentions on you? Would you draw out of us, Lord, reasons why we need the gospel afresh? Would you, would you plant in us the seeds of truth and cause those seeds that are there? Would you, would you water and nourish them that they might grow and produce fruit? Holy Spirit, would you act on us as we contemplate this story together? Would you bring us to a, a, a fresh sense of the power of grace and the unbelievable love of our Father? Would you work those things into us that we would be formed and shaped and reformed and reshaped after truth? So that this week, as we leave this place and fulfill the callings that you have in our lives, that we would live out the truth. All this so that you would be glorified. So that we would remember it's not so much a mission that you have for your people as a people that you have for your mission. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, I need to introduce you to a new old friend. His name is Hosea. Hosea lived and prophesied around the year 730, approximately 10 years before the northern kingdom fell to Assyria. So less than 10 years away from God's people being sacked by the Assyrians and taken into captivity, Hosea writes this story and lives out this story. Hosea was a prophet, which means that he represented God to the people. It means that he had to speak to people and declare, this is God's opinion. This is, the, these are what, God, this is what God thinks. This is who God is. That was his job as a prophet, to explain to people the mind of God, the character of God, and what God says about reality. He, that's what he had to do. And I also need you to understand that Hosea, um, he's a lot like us. He's a guy that has experienced the struggle of faithfulness. Any of y'all struggle with living out your faith? You find it so easy every day. 
Hosea was a guy that struggled to be faithful and knew the struggle of faithfulness. He was also a guy that experienced others being unfaithful to him. And along the way, he discovered that he wasn't quite as faithful as he thought he might be. He knew, he knew the struggle, he knew the struggle of betrayal. He knew what it was like to live in this world, in this life, a literal life on this earth when he was betrayed. My hunch is most of you can relate to all of that. Hosea is like us, a broken person, a sinful person living in a broken and sinful world. So we're going to look at this story to make sure we're all on the same page and then get to the so what. What in the world does this mean for me? So let's get the story of Hosea. Well, if you turn back to chapter 1, if you have a copy of the scriptures, I would encourage you to keep it open or flip back and forth on your screen if that's easy for you. Here's the story. God comes to Hosea and says, Hosea, in chapter 1, I want you to go marry someone who is going to be unfaithful. We get hints of it here in chapter 3, but he says it explicitly in chapter 1. I want you to go marry someone who's an adulterer. I want you to marry someone who's unfaithful, and I want you to have children with her. Now, if you're in the South and you're listening, you're thinking to yourself, do what? Do what? God, God wants me to do what? God says, go marry someone who's going to be unfaithful, and I want you to have children. And Hosea and Gomer had three children, and the last one is named not mine. Do you have a guess as to why that child was named not mine? Because Hosea's wife had a child not with Hosea. And then you read on, and Gomer ended up leaving Hosea and having relationships with others to the point where she ended up living with another man while she was still married to Hosea. And if you read between the lines in chapter 2, God mentions a couple different times that I provided all these things for my people, uh, wheat and wine and all these things that you need for normal everyday life. And if you read between the lines, it sounds like God is paralleling what had happened, something that happened with Hosea and Gomer, and he's giving that as an analogy, a very specific analogy, because the whole thing's an analogy, but giving us very specific situation about God's people as if to say this, Gomer was living with another person, and one day Hosea showed up at the door, knocked on the door and said, hey, is uh, Gomer here? And the guy that answered the door said, yes. And Hosea gave the guy money so that his wife, who was living with another man at the time, could have grain and everything that she needed throughout the day and the week. And she didn't even know that Hosea had provided that for her. And the reason why that's so profound and the reason why I'm making such a big deal about this is this. God is saying, I provide for my people the, what they need to live and be sustained every day. And my people instinctively act as if they provide it themselves. And they don't even realize that I've given them everything that they need. Well, then that brings us to chapter 3. And it's not just Hosea had to marry this woman who was going to be unfaithful and promiscuous. It's that 
Ultimately, it seems from chapter 3 that things didn't get much better from chapter 2. That it seems as though she ended up at an auction in which whether she was willing for this or not, she was in a position in which other people would bid on her to take her and use her as property. Talk about objectifying. Talk about treating other people not as human beings, but just as property, things to consume. The porn industry has not changed much, has it? Prostitution hasn't changed much, has it? But put yourself in her position, no matter how horrible and horrifying it is for us to hear about that and think about the reality of that and how that continues on even today in a multitude of ways. Just put yourself, just if, if it's possible, put yourself in her position in which you're beginning to think about, surely at some point, surely at some point, she's thinking to herself, what am I doing? Surely at some point, at some point she's got to think to herself in some shape, some form, I am at the absolute bottom. I am worthless. Look at my life. What am I doing? How did I get here? Well, Hosea follows what God says, and he bids for her. We read the bidding, war. We read the result of it. He he, he bid what he needed. He outbid other people, and he purchased her and brought her back so that she was now with him. Then, in chapter 4 through chapter 13, God takes this whole scenario, he gives glimpses of it in chapter 2, but from chapter 4 to 13, God applies everything we've just talked about to his people. That this is my people. This whole scenario is a picture of my relationship, God's saying, with my people. And then in chapter 14, no surprise, I hope, to any of you, I hope you're getting in the rhythm of this, especially with the prophets, there is the promise and the hope of restoration. And if you look in chapter 14, the last half of the chapter, if you just look at it, all you need to do is just look at it to see what I'm going to say. I, I, I. God flips the script and he just, continue, he just starts saying, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Because he loves his people that much that ultimately he would turn them into some type of, this is biblical imagery that is everywhere, a, a flourishing tree. A tree in which the nations are gathered and a tree in which the nations find hope and rest. Does that sound familiar to you? God says, I will have a people and my people will be strong and stable. And through my people, other peoples will be gathered together and they will be with me and I will be with them. Sound familiar? Do you hear the four-part story in that? Do you hear the promise to Abraham in that? Do you hear the garden in that? Because you're supposed to. That's how the book ends. And that means that it actually leaves us, of course, with hope in chapter 14. But for our purposes today, 
Not only are we left with hope, when you go back and read chapter 3, uh, if you've been paying attention or thinking about it or engaged, what happens? We're left with a cliffhanger. So Hosea goes to the auction and wins back his bride. Well, what happens? Does she stay? Does she go? Do you feel the weight of the, the cliffhanger there? We don't know. Well, that's the story. Hope and a huge cliffhanger. That's the story. So let's get into the so what. What are we supposed to do with this? What does this mean for me? Two things. One, we are invited to investigate sin. When you read Hosea, God is inviting you, he's inviting me to investigate sin. He wants us to think about what this story teaches us about the anatomy of sin. He wants us to think about and investigate carefully, deeply, circumspectly. What, what is sin really like? Because I need you to understand that sin, the way God looks at sin and brokenness, it's not just that we break rules. It's actually deeper than that because we can look at the word of God and break the rules outwardly and think inwardly we're still pretty decent and we would totally miss what God has to say to us about sin and rebellion. If we're gonna understand sin, God wants us to understand that sin is actually not just breaking the rules, sin is actually deeply an expression of unfaithfulness. That spiritually speaking, we are all promiscuous. That spiritually speaking, we are unfaithful toward God. That's what sin is. Now let's try to work that out. Let's slow down in our lives and try to work this out. I want you to think about, what is it that you really value? You value control? Do you value uh, winning? Uh, do you value uh, money? What is it that you put all kinds of value in? What is it that really drives you in another way? What, what is it that you're really looking for and really want? Being right all the time? Maybe sex is a thing for you, like in a really, really deep way. Not just that you enjoy it, blah, 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 but like, oh no, it's a really big deal in your life. Pleasure. What is it that you put a tremendous amount of value on? Managing your time, being right, all those things. What is it for you? Because if you're willing to identify what you really value, and if you need someone to help you with that, I bet you have a friend that can help you look at your life and think about it. Because the next question is, how did you get to the point of valuing that thing so high? How did you get to the point of putting an enormous amount of value on being right or control or power or money or pleasure? How did you get there? Because my hunch is it went something like this in your life. This is how it happened in mine. At some point in my life, I found, you fill in the blank, this interesting. Matter of fact, it was intriguing. You remember feeling that way about your work ethic or your career or money or power or control, managing your time, approval from other people? You became interested in something, and it was intriguing to you, and so you decided to pursue it. 
And in pursuing it, eventually you experienced it. You experienced control in some form, power in some form, the, the, the financial gain in some way, or loss. You experienced pleasure in some way. And when you had that experience of it, there was a rush. There was exhilaration. There was a sense of, this has just added something to my life. So that now I've experienced something new, something I'm interested in. Whether that was money or control, you get the point. And from there, you thought to yourself, I'm not just interested in this but I want that. And want became desire. And desire became need. And need became have. And have became I have to have this. And having to have this became this is my life. I know that I mean something, I'm worth something because I have this. And when I'm right all the time, I feel the exhilaration of that. And I feel that I'm worth something or pleasure. If you're someone that is just addicted to pleasure and new things, something happened along the way in which you have decided to live in accordance with, I've got to have that. Being right, approval. So that if you don't have the approval from the person that you want, You feel as though I have to have it and I will do whatever it takes to get it. Lie, steal, not not necessarily in some formal outward way, but inside. Do you feel the weight of this? Beloved, this is a picture of our sin, that we have these desires and these wants, and most of the time they are contrary to what God says about those things pleasure, the money, the power, the control, the approval. But because we're in a pattern, we live very unfaithful and promiscuous lives. That's what sin is. We become unfaithful to God and we think that we can manage them and we think that we can control them. And at the end of the day, if we're honest by God's grace, we say, no, they actually control me. You see, Sin is not just breaking the law. Sin is a deep down unfaithfulness toward God in which we can't appropriately control how we should interact with pleasure, with money, with power, with control, with approval. We fundamentally can't interact with those things appropriately. And therefore, we live our life being unfaithful to God. That means that this cliffhanger that is left in chapter three is on purpose. God doesn't tell us what happens with Gomer and with Hosea. You know why? Because if they stayed together, what we would think is we'd turn this into a formula. See, it works. And if they don't end up staying together because she's unfaithful or he's unfaithful, you know what we think? It doesn't work. I don't want that. God is pulling us into the story with this cliffhanger because he wants us to identify with the person that is unfaithful. 
He wants us in a deep down way to understand how our own heart works because the analogy of sexual promiscuity, we get it. We know what it's like to desire that, to see it, to want it, to need it, to have to have it, to live in accordance with it, right? And God is saying, if you want to investigate sin, if you want to understand it, you have to recognize it has this power over your heart. And it means that your interactions with all these things that he's created that are good, we all have horrible relationships with them. We can't properly deal with it because our hearts are broken. We rebelled against God. Well, we're also invited to know God. We're not just invited to investigate sin, we're actually invited to know God through this story. This is a book and a story about God. So God invites us to know him. And in knowing him, we need to think about this. How do you think of your relationship to God? And understanding who God is, how, how do you understand God? Do you, do you think of him as judge? Do you think of him as king? Do you think of him as shepherd? Do you think of him as parent? Because friends, all of those are appropriate and good. They're all appropriate, they're all right. He is judge, he is king, he is your shepherd, he is your father, all true. But let me tell you, in and of themselves, not enough. God gives us this story so that we might understand that our relationship to him is not simply king, shepherd, parent, judge. He wants us to understand that our relationship with him is like a faithful spouse. Because here's where that idea can catch fire in your life. Here's where that idea can transform you. I want you to plug in your unfaithfulness that maybe you might have sensed in the last point. Whatever it is that you struggle with, whatever the multiple things are, we're just gonna use the big idea of unfaithfulness here. If your primary rubric of understanding God is that God is judge, then guess what? The judge looks at your unfaithfulness and says, you have broken the law here, you are guilty. And that'd be absolutely right. If you think of God as king, he would look at your unfaithfulness and say, your waywardness is not only against the crown, but it's also against the kingdom. And you'd be exactly right. And if God is your shepherd, and that's the overriding rubric by which you understand your relationship to God, then he's looking at you and thinking, oh, here's the sheep. They're going wayward again. I'm willing to leave these and go get them. And oh, by the way, I think God intentionally chooses sheep to be a great image because we all know the sheep are pretty dumb. But you would be right in recognizing that God looks at you as a shepherd and sheep. If you look at God primarily for the, through the rubric of parent, then he looks at your unfaithfulness. And what he knows is that a piece of him dies when he sees his son or daughter being unfaithful, a piece of him dies, but he's always holding out hope, right? 
That's what we do as parents when we see our children go wayward. It, uh, part of us dies, but we hope. But beloved, you've got to have the reality that God looks upon you and the relationship with you is a faithful spouse. And that means when we are unfaithful to God, it means that it is devastating to his heart. That it devastates and breaks his heart. It means that it exposes him in ways that no other relationship can. And thanks be to God, it means that he is ever faithful in the midst of our faithlessness at times. We are invited to understand God and how is it that you view God? Do you see him as your spouse? Do you recognize that yes, he's judge, yes, he's king, yes, he's shepherd, yes, he is your father, but it is as if he is married to you with all the intimacy that comes with that. Do you realize on our side that all of our sin comes across him as being unfaithful to the most loving being in the universe? That all of our sin is where we express that we prefer to forsake our first love? But this whole story is not just inviting us to understand God, it's challenging us to see what he does. And this is what he does. He pays and he stays. So if you've come here this morning, you're thinking, wow, this is really heavy and the pastor is just burying me this morning in my unfaithfulness. Oh no, oh no, I'm trying to take you as deep as I can because God takes us as deep as we are willing to go with our unfaithfulness because no matter how horrible our unfaithfulness is, his mercy is more. Do you believe that? So it frees you to acknowledge your unfaithfulness because you get to see his mercy and his grace. Let me show you. Here's what he does. First thing he does is pays. Hosea goes to the auction. Can you imagine what it would have been like if you're in the position now of Gomer? And here you are at the auction being bid upon and you hear your husband's voice? Can you imagine that? Here you are naked, open. People are treating you as an object and you recognize the voice? And the voice continues? No matter how high the price goes, the voice of your husband continues to the point that he has won? Beloved, that is exactly what God has done for us in Christ. He has paid the price. Do you remember the, the Bible saying to you, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross? And how about this phrase? Despising the shame. Do you see how that makes sense within the story of Hosea? Here is Jesus looking upon us knowing the shame that we are uh, uh, embodying. God sees the shame of our unfaithfulness and he despises it and he's willing to die for it. So if you ever feel like that you have all kinds of shame and guilt for your unfaithfulness, guess what? 
Jesus sees it and he despises it and he paid for it because of the joy of winning you back. That's the love that our God has for us. He pays. And not only that, but he also stays. If you look in verse three of chapter three, it's a verse that's really hard to translate. I can't work all it out for you. But Hosea, in effect, says to Gomer, you know what? Let me back up because you really need to get the weight of this before we jump into that verse. I want you to think about, imagine what might have been going on, what's maybe going on in your mind when you realize that you're Gomer and you realize that you're there and you realize that your husband, meaning Jesus, has just paid for you. Imagine what might go through your mind upon the completion of the bidding. Imagine what might go through your mind the seconds before your conversation with your husband begins. I could imagine that we might be thinking, I would be thinking, oh, I don't know how this is going to go. Is he going to lord this over me the rest of our relationship? Am I just another piece of property? Every conflict, every, every struggle that we have from here forward, is he just going to bring this up again? What is our relationship going to be like moving forward? Is he just going to lord this over me for the rest of our life? This is what Hosea says in verse three that's really hard to translate. He says to his wife, hey, you're gonna be with me. And for a period of time, because if you notice verse five, it says after this. So verse three is tied to four and five and helps us understand it. What Hosea is saying to Gomer is this, for a period of time, you're not gonna sleep with anybody else. You're not even gonna sleep with me. And I'm not going to sleep with anybody else. I'm not even going to sleep with you. And what we're going to do is we're going to work this out. That's what he's saying. And beloved, that means if you're here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, wow, Jesus has paid all this for me. Does that mean that from now on there's this constant sense of displeasure and that he's frustrated with me and that he doesn't want to be around me? This verse is telling you, no, no. This verse is telling you, no, Jesus says, I'm going to be with you, and we're going to be so close that we're going to work through things so that our relationship is strong and healthy and centered on truth and grace. And beloved, that's what it means to grow in the Christian life, is to have a relationship with Jesus in which he's constantly working things out in our lives so that one day we'll be closer than we've ever been. Do you get it? You also find in the scriptures in Hebrews chapter nine this, that Jesus' blood was offered as a sacrifice for you. And the effect of that sacrifice is that his blood actually purifies your conscience and my conscience so that we are free from doing dead works to serve the living God. Do you hear the relational language? It's not just that we should be overwhelmed with the grace of God that he would pay the penalty and the price to bring us back. That's what Jesus did. Is that his blood is so powerful that it cleanses our conscience. 
And when our conscience is cleansed and our conscience is purified and we think about ourselves the way that God sees us, it means that we are free not to do dead works, but we are free to serve God. Why? Because our relationship is getting worked out. And that's the journey we're on with Jesus. So we don't have to worry anymore about whether or not God is displeased with us or constantly just disgruntled with who we are and what we're doing. No! He's loved us. He's paid for us to bring us into relationship. You see, the whole point of this story, the whole point of the book is to work this idea into people like me and you. Covenant love. That's the point. It's something we don't think about. It's maybe a term we've never heard before because we live in a world of cheap love. We live in a world that says, here's a form of love, unqualified affirmation. And friends, I need you to know that that is one of the cheapest loves ever. And it is everywhere in the world in which we live. It's demanded. And that, cheap, that form of cheap love, unconditional affirmation, means that we pay the cost relationally of being in a relationship with someone, we're willing to pay the cost of that, but no truth. And the other form of cheap love is just where the eject button is most prominent. Meaning, we're not really willing to absorb the personal cost of a relationship but man, we are willing to tell the truth in any way we want and any time we want. So it ends up being truth without actually being willing to absorb the cost of a relationship. Because you know every relationship costs something, right? And covenant love is where we don't just have truth. We have the embodiment of truth. Truth in a body, truth in a person. And his name is Jesus and we have the greatest possible personal cost in what Jesus has done. So covenant love means that you and I are in a relationship in which there is a person who is truth and the same person who is willing to absorb the greatest possible cost for that relationship. And that means his name is Jesus, right? Do you see him? Because he is the only way that we get rescued out of this mess. And the only way that we are constantly transformed because of his covenant love.